Hello and welcome to my first dungeon. Actually, no, wait, wait this is the spooky season. <laughs> These things are true. The world is dark and we are alive. Hello and welcome back to my first dungeon, the tabletop role-playing podcast where we put first-time game masters through their paces as we build and run their very first one-shot and then circle back around to discuss what went right, what went wrong, and how we can make our games even better. This season, we delved deep into darkness in the tragic horror game Ten Candles by Stephen Dewey, produced by Calvary Games. Ten Candles is a zero-prep game designed for one-shots and three-to-six players, and is played by the light of just ten tea candles. When only one candle remains, the game enters its final scene in which all of the characters will meet their end. In this game, death is certain. All you can do is keep moving and try not to lose hope. Last episode, I brought together a familiar group of players, and we experienced our very first taste of this amazing game. And I'm joined once again by the DM for that session. He is the designer of games such as Abominations and Something is Wrong with the Chickens. Please welcome back to the show, Elliot Davis. Elliot, how you doing? Hey, Brian. Good to be here as always. Good to have you back. First things first, you've been wanting to play this game for a long time. I've been wanting to play this game for a long time. We finally, so finally able to do it on a particularly spooky and rainy night. What'd you think of the game? Oh, I mean, somehow exceeded my very high expectations of, of what it was going to be. I, I knew I was going to like the game, but I... Um, I think Chinook was saying kind of maybe off mic at the end, just like how different it is when you're actually doing all the rituals of the game in person, like how mm-hmm. it really just really, really captures that that vibe when you're when you're in it. It feels way different than reading it as much as much fun as reading it is. I think the first time we all said and we are alive together, I think even on Mike Chinook was like, ooh, I hated that. That was spooky <laughs> and creepy. And it's like you do get that set, that kind of occult sensation that I'm sure people Absolutely. are interested in like tarot and things like that, which really just leads right into the really just reinforces the tone and the the vibe that you're trying to get with this game. And it's so nice, you know, as a player and I'm sure as, as a game master to have that work, that like really difficult work of establishing vibe and tone kind of done for you by the game. Oh, yeah. It was such a surprisingly like easy aspect of running the game. Like there were definitely things that I found challenging about running this game, but in terms of like establishing the tone and getting like all three of you on board with that tone, like that was I didn't have to do anything. You know, once the candles were lit and the you know, the phrases were established and everything, that was done. I didn't have to say a thing and that would have been done. Yeah, I think the the character creation process in this, I think I felt the same way with Wanderhome. Mm-hmm. The character creation process is so collaborative and it walks you through it in a way that gets you into the mindset you need to be in for the game. Whereas like when you play D and D it walks you through how to create a character, but not how to get into the mindset of, all right, we're going to play high fantasy. We're going to play et cetera, mm, et cetera. That's such an interesting point. Probably because that game has a bit more breadth to it in that it's trying to grab a wider audience. So it wants to it wants to appeal to players who are playing high fantasy, low fantasy, sci-fi-esque, whereas this has a very particular tone it's trying to hit. Wander Home has a very particular tone it's trying to hit. And it really helps when the game does so much of that work for you. 
Yeah, I, I think it's it, that's so dead on. And I think it's such an interesting thing from like a design perspective of like when you make character creation part of play, mm-hmm. it really, really, you can then do a lot of really interesting things with it. And I think it's sort of maybe a loss for games like D&D that they don't like push you to be more collaborative in your character or not necessarily maybe not even collaborative is the word that i'm looking for but together while you're doing it like you could build a D character as an island bring your character sheet to the table and like you'd still have a functional game but like i think there's probably something you would get more when you have everybody around building characters off of each other and talking about it but it's just not structured in D, so you don't think you have to do it but i bet it would add a lot to D games to do that in like a session zero where you really like where the DM comes with some kind of like exercises that pull the flavor that they're trying to go for. You know, I think that, I think that that's interesting. That actually would be a pretty fun exercise to design something like that. Maybe, maybe we should talk about this off mic. Uh, yeah, right. This is actually a great <laughs> idea, but like with games that are broader like that to have that kind of session zero planned out in, cause I, th- I think D and D and a lot of games have session zero planned out where Let's talk about the tone. Let's talk about these things. But it's not as collaborative as like this or as Wander Home or as something is wrong with the chickens. Like, Mm. yes, I can roll up characters in something is wrong with the chickens. Yes, I can kind of explore the playbooks in Wander Home. But like Jay said, and like is true in this game, the characters don't come alive until you are at the table together Mm. and like asking each other those questions. Like your character is partially defined by your relationships to other characters and that just makes it so much easier to play right and i think that the one of the best parts of this game's process for doing that is the brink is the fact that you do the brinks after other Mm -hmm. people have established like kind of who their character is what their name is and then everybody has to write the brink for their neighbor and it's written in a pov of like i've seen you do something i've seen you act a certain way like yeah that's that's killer i love that and i think uh, for this game as well, the, the the character creation process really helped ground us immediately into what we we're doing. But I think more so than that, the like dice mechanics and the game mechanics of this game did a ton of the heavy lifting for you because it kind of has a built-in tension mechanism to it with the shrinking mm. and growing dice pools. But you don't feel it first, I found. I sort of I sort of found myself like in the first couple scenes being like not feeling that. And mm-hmm. then as soon as we got into like the like third, fourth, fifth, that's where you really start to feel the change where I'm like, oh, all of a sudden, like I'm rolling a little better and like they're rolling a little worse. And it's mm-hmm. like, OK, this is this is a I can feel the way this game shifts. And it's interesting what I didn't expect about like the pacing that that created. And I, maybe it's maybe it's not even maybe it's just chance the way our pacing happened is I expected the beginning to be a lot longer and the end to be a lot shorter. But I think that we sort of experienced the opposite like our scenes got a little longer towards the end and maybe it's just because like the survival instincts were kicking in harder and like uh you guys were playing a little smarter i don't know and i think the the luck of eustace at the beginning could not have been worse no absolutely not eustace was cosmically doomed from the start i you know extinguished two two candles to bad rolls and one to folly by trying to light my (laughs) my trait on fire and extinguishing the candle that way so if you're listening to this and you want to play this game remember be careful when lighting your stuff on fire because you may put out a candle that way yeah i don't think it says it in the wind as it turns out yeah i don't even think it was i think it was like i pressed because i was like oh let's light the candle. so i just pressed it into the wick 
and it just yeah, yeah, extinguished yeah. it. I would have, I do think I would have been a little disappointed if we didn't have an accidental candle burn that ended a scene. I think, I think I, I was glad that we ran into the sort of like yeah, trapping for sure. Um, I wouldn't have wanted to force it. I wouldn't have wanted to like blow out a candle, like, and be like a jerk like that. But I, but I do love that we got to experience a sort of like accidental scene end that was very dramatic. And I also think that that, what I loved about how Chinook and Abby responded to that um, in character is it really created this dynamic between them two and Eustace where they mm-hmm. were like, oh, Eustace is a kid. He doesn't understand what he's doing. Like, we're the adults in the room. And I don't know without the roles if that would have happened that same way. I don't know that Eustace was like doomed to be that character. I think that like you did, you know, present Eustace as a little bit uncertain, but I don't know that it would have landed quite so strongly without the mechanics landing that way and without Eustace's bad roles. I just, yeah, it played really well into him, that dynamic being super believable. And that's a credit to, you know, Chinook and Abby's ability to kind of like play off of that and and your ability as well. I really didn't intend with that character for him to be like such a fuck up and yeah. to be like, <laughs> right. so, but then like that happens and you're like, okay, well this is like, you got to respect the dice. Like the dice are telling you something, you know, yeah. cosmically or otherwise. I've been given a role playing opportunity, an improvisational opportunity, and you got to jump on that because that's just the universe giving you a freebie, giving you, you know, a layup. You got to fucking slam that thing in. And it made it a lot of fun for me because like they they know me well enough that like they can razz me for, you know. Yeah, being, yeah, for, for sure. For, you know, especially because I'm the one who hosts multiple tabletop role playing game podcasts and like plays more than most people. So me, you know failing the first two rolls and then accidentally extinguishing a candle like they knew they had to jump on that and i oh, knew i yeah, had to yeah. play off that um which was and also fun. it's interesting could can you think of another game where like one or two rolls changed the trajectory of your character so much like i think just maybe it's the scope and scale of like story in this game in the in the way that like roles translate to to like in world moments. I, so. I don't know. I can't think of something that was like quite such a dramatic like trajectory change from like and that's yeah. that's sort of like these like scene ending roles. Like a failed role is a is a scene ender, yeah. Especially cuz it happened so early. It like really defined my character, my relationship to the others and and Shinook and Abby's characters relationships to each other having a power dynamic over Eustace being, right, you know, right. trying to keep him at bay and stuff, which was a lot of fun to play cuz I Again, this this game kind of because of the, the brink aspect when we got towards the end and I had forgotten what my what my brink was by the end. Mm. And it was like, I've seen you steal from people who have possibly slighted you or something. I've seen you take uh, important things. And so I get to the end and I'm like about to steal a boat and leave. I'm like, I never played the super selfish character. Uh, so right. like being confronted with like, I literally had forgotten about it. I pulled it up to the light so I could read it again. And like I had just narrated me going to the boat. I read it again. I'm like, oh, no, I failed. And now the the only way to succeed is for me to like be an asshole and leave my friends behind. Right. But I feel like that it's so funny because that is like a I feel like that kind of character in this kind of movie, if you think about it in a movie, is the one that like unexpectedly at the end, like is like the selfish shithead and mm-hmm. and tries to get away and then gets like some meet some horrible end or something. I'm thinking of like, I don't know who is it's like a Topher Grace character in my mind um, <laughs> is who I'm picturing. <laughs> and, and with the 
a candle getting accidentally snuffed out so early, it added an additional sense of like tension and terror anytime someone else lit something on fire. Like yeah, every yeah, time yeah. we were all kind of like, if someone went in too quickly to light something on fire, we'd be, oh no, 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 wait, wait, sh- qu- careful, right. careful, careful. And that, that like real world caution really fed into the vibe of the game and like what I was feeling as the character and as the player is like having those two things be parallel, like terror and worry as a player and terror and worry as a character made Mm. the game so much easier to get into Uh, and, and like allowed you to stay in that, in that mindset, uh, which is, you know, can be tough. Yeah. It made, it made all, it made the decision to use the card in front of you feel super weighty. Even before you described anything it meant about your character, it felt like there was weight behind the decision to burn that card. And I didn't, I don't think I realized like in thinking about the setup abstractly, and this is the difference between like when you're thinking about a game versus actually playing the game is I didn't realize it's like, yeah, like you're, you're, you've got a bunch of pieces of paper that you're having to bring into the center of this like very fragile candle setup, like fragile in the flame sense, you know? And like, so like, that's definitely intentional. Um, I think like from Stephen Dewey's kind of design perspective, like that's, you know, there's a reason you're lighting your traits and brinks on fire because it's cool to watch it burn away and like feel it metaphysically burn away. But it also feels like it, it inevitably is going to blow out a candle that I'm sure we're not the first table where somebody blew out a candle, uh, trying to burn one of their index cards. I knew it would be fun to like sit around the table in darkness just lit by candles, burn away these things. But maybe it's just like, you know, the the former Boy Scout in me, but like lighting things on fire, putting them into like we had, you know, a little Cafe Bustello coffee can that had been previously holding pens and markers and stuff. And we, you know, drop our things in there. A pretty good like flame comes up for a couple of seconds and it does really get you into that like survivalist mentality, like like that kind of primordial fascination with fire. As abstract and, you know, hippy-dippy as that might sound, it really just adds into the vibe of the game. Yeah. And it's even a lighting change that that feels like it yeah. feels like you get like a as it gets darker and darker and darker when you're down to like three, four candles, that burnt trait or brink or moment is giving you this moment of like brighter light. And you almost feel like you can like take a breath, which is also usually in game a moment where like you're taking a little bit of control. So like I was very surprised by how much it would change the lighting. Yeah. When you're just operating at uh, on candlelight alone. Um, And I loved that. I loved that that always was a thing is whenever like a character was like taking control or like taking action by doing one of these things. We were also lighting up the table a little bit more and feeling like a little less like claustrophobic. Yeah. For for a brief moment by doing this, you're a little less in the dark. Right. And it, it again, it's just great game design that every aspect of the mechanics, every aspect of the character design, or every aspect of the character building just feeds into the tone that you want. And yeah. I think, you know, that's a lesson I when I first read this, I took it into like some of the games that I was working on at the time. That like just be intentional, like have a clear idea of what tone you're looking for, have a clear idea of what tone you're trying to create at the table and just have everything feed into that because if you have one goal like that you can miss you know four or five times in the book but you're gonna hit way more than than not yeah 100 percent. it's so it's so 
efficient in like what it all accomplishes. That's what's like, it feels every aspect of the game design is there for a reason. You know, I feel like sometimes you can find like maybe in bigger games more often, but there's sometimes just things where it feels like bloat, like for the, for the design. And this just feels like every, every piece of it is just super intentional. There was even a small thing that I, I doubt this was intentional, but it did add to the experience a little bit is that when you're playing by the light of 10 tea candles, it is really hard to read the numbers on dark dice. <laughs> yeah. So we would like grab our dice and like, you know, we were rolling them into like a cardboard box or into a, into a dice tray. And we'd have to like pick up each die individually and like trying to tilt it towards the light. And normally I'm so used to like you'd roll some dice. You can immediately like glance over them and see a six or see a one and know if you're successful or not. But all of a sudden it's taking me like five, six, seven, ten seconds to go through all the dice and see Oh my god, that's also not a six. Oh my god, that's also not a six. That's not. A, that's a one. That's a. That's another one. And then you know, <laughs> I hear Elliot say, uh, you know, on the other side of the table, oh, I've got two sixes, and I've got three dice left, and I haven't seen a six yet. Yeah, like it really is this little extra fun touch that again just just adding into the vibe of the game. We might have done that a little to ourselves. I think the book does recommend ten dice of one color, and I think we had a, a little bit of a variety that made it a little more interesting. <laughs> yeah, I probably I probably could have designed it better from a from a playing standpoint. But yeah, honestly, yeah. I recommend using weird. Yeah, make dice them hard and, to read. Yeah, yeah ma- make it tough. When we talked to Steven in episode one, you had a number of like areas where you were worried, and I kind of want to like touch back on those and see how you felt during the game and kind of how you feel now afterwards. Some of them were you were a little bit worried about like creating a sense of horror and of dread because kind of in your words, you don't really do the like spooky voice. And it can be tough to, you know, impart that sense of horror without doing something like that, which, uh, you know, from my perspective, I think you did great because I was worried and scared and terrified the whole time. How did you feel as the game started and kind of as the game ended now looking back, you know, a few days removed from it? Did you feel you were successful in the way you wanted to be? Yeah, I do. I do, I do think that ultimately, um, and again, because of all the things we we're talking about, I think that I had a huge, you know, boost from the game and the way that the setup of the game does it. And I think, you know, I will always pass credit on to the players and say that I think I had three really good players that made it very easy to, you know, get into the mode and, you know, feed into establishing that horror. I think that all three of you were also interested in making it really scary right away. I don't think Mm -hmm. any of you took convincing. I think that I did have that anxiety at the beginning during setup, especially during setup because it's a lot of like waiting. Like I tell you guys something to write and then I'm just kind of waiting for you to do it. And the whole time in that silence, I'm like, Oh man, this isn't going to be scary at all. I can't. I'm, I'm, what 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 are we, what's going to happen? And I'm like thinking, I'm like, what are the th- what what are they what are they going to be like in this game? Like, where are we going? Like, and also, like, I presented these two modules to you guys. One was like the island resort, and one was like the scientists escaping a city. And like in my brain, I was like, oh, I can, I know how scientists escaping a city can be scary and in my brain i was like island resort i'm a little worried i'm a little worried i don't know how to make that scary and then you guys were like yeah island resort sounds cool and i was like all right let's uh let's do it i think it's because some, um, someone said white lotus and we were all like all right great yes cultural touchstone yes. that three out of four <laughs> of us had not seen yeah no i haven't seen white lotus but now i now i'm uh, inclined to watch but you know it's it's it it ultimately was just like I was thinking about I just thought about like what what do I have in my toolbox of 
things and um i realized that like npcs are something i didn't think about ahead of time with this game Mm -hmm. like i wasn't like i i guess i knew on some level that there were npcs but like it wasn't a conscious thought and then npcs started to make a little bit of an appearance at the beginning and then they became more and more prescient as we went on and i think that they were sort of my way of like giving the world a bit more dread because i could describe why an npc was in a bad spot rather than trying to like force the characters into a bad spot where it's like it's it's way scarier like the i'm thinking about like the one of the first ones was the two soldiers it's like way scarier to be like hiding and watching two soldiers fight monsters than to be two soldiers fighting monsters so and then you know the noise that I decided to make for the monsters is just a noise that I have made since I was like 13 years old, just like all the time. And I was just like, this is a good monster noise. Like, and it's like an upper register, which like I said, I don't have like a particularly deep voice. So I knew I couldn't go for like real, like kind of dread, but like I knew like high pitched kind of whining monster sound was good and has that other kind of horror to it. So yeah, I really like at first was very nervous. And then I just started like, digging into my GM toolbox and it's like, okay, what do I, what do I actually have to work with? And like, what should I not even like waste time trying to work with, you know, like leaning into things that I know I can do. You, I think are in a particularly good spot to GM a no prep game, even though you've never played this game before because you have created a no prep game and like are more familiar with those for people who maybe haven't played no prep games or are more used to games like D&D where there's a more traditional like dungeon master build something, players play it. When you're doing something that doesn't have prep involved, what's going through your mind kind of in the early stages of the game? Kind of when we're, you know, in the character creation in like those first two candles and then as the game progresses. Because I know once you get towards the end, it's kind of, you kind of have the momentum, but it's those early moments that without anything to fall back on, you've got to create a world. What are you kind of looking for from your players? What signals are you looking for? What are you kind of like drawing on from yourself uh, in your experience running these types of games? Yeah. um, So I think like early on. I'm trying to focus. I I, and I, I don't always do the best job of this, but I'm trying to focus first on character, you know, like trying to just listen, actively listen to the players as they're describing their characters and like all of the little things that you guys are saying about your characters, like with Abby's character, Babs being a fourth grade teacher. Like I knew that that was like a specific kind of character. And mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily know that like I ended up pulling anything out that was like specific to her being a teacher, but like really when like in no prep games, I'm always just like at first is like, okay, like who are these people? What is going to be difficult for them as a group? Like how do they come together as a group? How do I, First, yeah, I guess the first thought is like, who are these people? Why are they together? And like, how do I establish that right away so that we don't have to waste too much time with the like meet the party scenario? Yeah. I think like with no prep games, I tend to like avoid a meet the party scenario. And I, I tend to just be like, you know, usually in these games, you have people introduce each other's characters to the table as part of character creation. But like, as soon as we get into play, I don't want to necessarily with a no prep one shot game be like, okay, you start on this side of the resort, you start on this side of the resort, like, here's how you, like, find your way to each other. It's like, no, here's what's been happening for the last three hours and why you ended up together, and here's now why we're all in one setting when it starts. 
The other thing I'm thinking about as I'm getting into that first scene is like, how do I drive them away from where they are right now? You know, what is Mm -hmm. the, and that's either going to be goal oriented or it's going to be threat oriented. And so in this one, it was a little bit of both. I was thinking like we had the module set up of like, you heard a radio call that there is this haven potentially on the Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland. Um, (laughs) And but then also you need to go right now because the door is getting slammed from behind and your barricade is breaking. So like right. I need you to make a decision right now. So early on I'm thinking about like how can I get them to make those first few decisions? How can I get the players to make those first few decisions and then you know get into the first role of the game kind of fast just to like make sure that everybody feels comfortable with the mechanics and like gets a test role out there, you know, something like a little not so severe. I think this one, the first one was like Babs and Grink were making shanks out of uh, champagne, yeah, bottles. champagne bottles. And it's like, if they had failed that role, I probably would have had them like get a cut and then the door would have burst open and we would have like done like scene transitions in truth. But like it was a relatively low stakes thing, but to try and roll on. And then, yeah, I think honestly, once I get to like the middle of a game, I'm doing a lot more giving the players space. I think that like when we would start scenes, I tried to be much more quiet for the first like 30 seconds or so. And just kind of like, you guys knew who your characters were at that point. You were probably talking about something. You were probably going to say something interesting that could prompt a prompt. And if you guys got too slow, I could just throw a monster sound out there and then that would create a sense of urgency and we would, you know, push along a little bit. But I think that in the middle, I'm trying to do a lot more, give the player space to establish things and then push them towards the things that like they've said that are most interesting and just, you know, rely on movies and TV shows that you like, I think is probably a lot of what I do. And in like, especially in horror games, like I think I literally called out a quiet place as a moment because I was like, it was just like the quickest way to describe this woman screaming and attracting all these monsters to her. It's like, yeah, right. Yeah. Use cultural touchstones when you have them, like they're there for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. In every game. The 80s are over, and you're not kids anymore. Now is a much darker time. Something happened to you, and you got touched by the weird, and it made you wild, and it made you powerful. This is the world of The Lost Bay, a suburban gothic RPG. A fever dream set in 1990X and inspired in equal parts by dark fantasy, horror classics, and the 90s indie culture. After years of development, and thanks to the feedback and support of a community of early enthusiasts, The Lost Bay is coming to Kickstarter, featuring a full rulebook and complete setting designed by Eco, kick-ass art by Evangeline Gallagher, killer maps by Strega Wolf Vandenberg, and six additional modules by some of the coolest designers in the indie scene. So go to thelostbayrpg.com to be notified on launch. That's thelostbayrpg.com. But actually, to to address the kind of the start of that game, running one-shots and even running, you know, full uh, games... I always have a hard time of getting things started as quickly as you did because I I always feel like oh I don't want to like 
put people in a, you know, I kind of want to see that how the people meet each other. I want people to, you know, have some agency in that. But I, I really, until you said it just now, I don't think I even realized how you, like, you just told us like, Hey, you're starting here. Here's what you feel. Here's what's going on. What do you do? And at no time when I was playing, did that feel forced upon me or like a negative in a way that I, as a game master, think it would feel to my players. So mm. that's like a good thing for me to remember, like, Hey, you know, give them a whole, give your players a whole bunch at the beginning, make it really easy for them. Like, let them know, here's what your setting is. Here's what your obstacles are. Here's how you know each other. Now there's a ticking clock of there's a goal you've got to reach. There's a threat coming in. What do you do? Cause now you've established everything else I need. Now I can just make my action rather than trying to figure out, okay, well I'm over here. I've got to meet this person. That was surprisingly educational for me mm. uh, as a game master to like know that that is not only like possible and a th- an easy thing to do, but also didn't feel bad as a player in the way yeah, that yeah. I kind of expected it to when I think about that as a game master. Yeah, and I think and I and I think that to to contradict myself a little bit, I will say that maybe that's not that's not always the right call. You know, sometimes like people sure. want that. Sometimes players want to have the like sit in a tavern and really get to know each other thing and you can kind of know when that when that's something people want but yeah generally in a one shot it's uh you don't necessarily have time for that and credit to this game you guys recording those goodbye messages at first does a lot to share with the others who that character is it does yeah. it does a it does a lot of work to to describe who a character is when you ask them to record their like final message to the world that is that is a juicy character building moment and also just one of the juiciest aspects of this game in general but like that like i was truly floored when chinook started recording his message and it was like him like grink saying goodbye to his daughter and that he wasn't going to make it to her birthday party like the tone of voice that chinook went into that right away like i like i was like uh, oh 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 we're in it yeah in yeah it right i was away. like okay yeah and like like again with like tone establishing i was like okay okay there's gonna be there's gonna be some sadness this is the tragic aspect of this game i was (laughs) like really yeah oh i couldn't believe it and i think it is a unique experience to ask a player right at the beginning of a game to make such large choices for their character and to do something that is you know very much outside of the normal breadth of a lot of role-playing games to record a final message like when do you get to do that in your life? And you're going right. to do that right when you learn, right when you create this character. You know nothing about them. You've got to decide what is their last message to the world? What do they truly care about? And then that kind of defines the character for the rest of the game for you. Right. And it's also so interesting because it does do that. And then it also creates a contrasting version of that character. Mm-hmm to who that character is by the time scene 10 is over. That was what kind of blew me away the most about listening back to the messages after is I think it was like Abby's character Babs, you know, we watched her really kind of like come into a little bit of badass moments in the in the course of play and was like very nurturing in the ways you kind of expected, but also then like was like, I want to teach them how to slit a throat. Right. As as part of my moment. And then it's like, and then you get Babs back at the end after she's been through all this and we've just watched her die. And then you get Babs talking to her students and talking to her birds. And it's like, 
yeah, that's Babs, but there's also a lot more to Babs that we now know mm-hmm. and makes this hit so much harder. Yeah, it's 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 brilliant, like brilliant to do that. Especially with, I think Chinook probably had the best contrast because in his first message, it's this like very sweet, caring father worried he's never going to like see his children again. And then the entire time we're with him in like real gameplay until, you know, the very end, he's this like gruff guy who's like not putting up with any shit. He's like, you know, throwing people around. He's lighting things on fire. And then so at the beginning, you see like a truth of him for the whole game. You see him. And at the end, you're reminded of that truth that maybe you didn't see throughout the game, but it's still there and like adds so much to the character. It's an incredibly cool mechanic of the game yeah i I remember that that was what was so shocking in the recording moment is because we had done the character intros in character and chinook introduced like i'm crank uh i work security it was like this kind of just sounded like a lovable oaf kind of character and then when he gets into the recording and does this like tender dad thing it's like oh no you're gonna break my heart is what you're gonna do yeah this is gonna be (laughs) rough no i really love it i think it's a great way to start a game and it's just such immediate buy-in in a way that is so hard in so many games. Yeah. I think looking to something like this, and I think that the questions aspect in Wander Home as well is just, you know, kind of front of mind because it's a game I've recently played, is just so good and so helpful to players, but also to game masters. Like you immediately know the the threads you can pull, the strings you can pull. The, the things you can do to make this game exciting and alive and interesting. Mm. Going back again to episode one and some of your like your worries going in, one of your other worries was kind of the sense of dread and parsing out monster sightings, like letting that be, mm. you know, a breadcrumb that we kind of slowly unveil, which I think you did great because we kind of we, we keep getting just a little bit more of them. We get, you know, them knocking on the door in the first scene and we're not even seeing them until scenes five, six, when we're at the house. And then we don't get, you know, the full explanation of them until the end of the game. All right. I don't even, I, I realized, I don't think I ever gave a, a real description of them, which I thought ultimately worked well. Yeah. I, I like was thinking about it afterwards. And I was like, I don't think I ever really got into like any sort of nitty gritty. I think it was just like horrifying and like big and shadowy and like red eyes was like the biggest detail, but I don't even think I came up with that detail. I think that that might've been a in character moment for Eustace. I think one of the, one of the big gifts that one of you gave me early on to work with was something's in the trees. Yeah. That was uh, something's in the trees. Yeah. Chinook saying something's in the trees established the like movement and literal looming nature of what them became like when they when we started i was like i didn't know if these were like ground monsters or you know flying monsters or whatever but when they were in the trees it was like oh i know how something scary is gonna move when it's in the trees it's gonna bounce back and forth between trees and then like when you're at the marina they're bouncing across the mass because they were bouncing across the trees it was like it just like it was a It was a little detail, and again, this is that, like, listen to your players and think about the things that they throw out. It was, like, that little detail that it was just like, okay, that's that's their, like, main movement. They're not really going to be running in a pack on the ground. They're going to be scaling across surfaces and, like, the chain link fence where they're, like, climbing along the sides of the chain link fence and the house where they're, like, all inside on the walls and shit in the house. Um, yeah, it really, 
gave a movement to them right away. And I think that what you said earlier about, you know, we kind of established the truth and you kind of sat back at the beginning of the scenes and let us kind of figure out what we're doing in the world. It gives the the game master, you know, as a, you know, what I think would be a good tip to other game masters playing this game or kind of any game, really. When you let your players, when you give them your players that space at the start of a scene, you can sit back and, and figure out, A, what is important to them and also B, what are they scared of? Mm. And then you can just build on those fear, especially in a like horror based game. If we start talking about those things in the trees, well, great. Now you know that this is how they move. You know, this is how they can be scary. If we start talking about, you know, we're interested in the old woman. Now, you know, that's where you should be putting your focus. Stepping back and letting your players kind of tell you what they're interested in while just playing the game makes it easy for you to jump in and give them what they want and heighten that experience. Yeah. And I think it's a, I think it's a, it's also a balance of like planning a few steps ahead in your mind, but not being attached to it at all. You know, mm-hmm. like I think when it, when it comes to a game like this, I think um, like I'm thinking of the example of the house um, with the woman in it. Mm-hmm. Like when I mentioned that there was a window with a light and a woman in it, my initial thought was like the, that woman, that is the only person in that house like this is just an old woman in like a panic room and like maybe she has a boat key that she's going to give them so that we can drive them towards a boat because eventually we're probably going to need to head towards a boat in order to kind of like move the story along. Right. And then when we were in there and you guys were in the like radio room and I don't even remember if I said that somebody came down, but I think one of you might have said and you were like, then like a like a guy, like a like a like a man comes into the door frame. And then it was like, oh, okay, no, no, no. This is a threatening situation. This is not a helpful situation. Like right. I thought. Now this is like a dude with a shotgun and he's threatening them and he's gonna kill Steven, the 70-year-old rockin' douchebag. The Aerosmith fan. The Aerosmith fan. And then he becomes like this, like, and then the fact that he's like a cannibal was just like a whole weird creation of just like mutual brainstorming happening in the moment where like, I don't even really know if we said cannibal until after that scene was over, or maybe somebody established it as a truth after that scene was over was like, oh, he was a cannibal. Like that was, that was one of the truths. But I think Chinook early on kind of planted the seed of like, we enter the cabin and everything's like too clean, clean and it's yes, placed too clean. and it's like yeah your head just goes to trap and then you go like you get to cannibal surprisingly quickly from that yeah it was good it was really good and, and, and yeah and that was one of those things and like other things that i was thinking about in terms of planning ahead is like i'm starting to think i'm like okay there are four candles left we need to get to some kind of like climactic scene i was like is that climactic scene gonna happen well they well if they get to the boat and the boat is successful then that climactic scene could happen while they're on the boat. And then maybe do these things, and this is all going in my head, like as we're getting down in like some of this lay time, like do these things like glide like fucking squirrels, like flying squirrels? And are they going to be like gliding onto the boat? Mm -hmm. Like how do I like create a sense of dread if they're on the boat? These things move in trees we've established, but then also just like very awesomely was established, I think by Chinook again, that there were some of them in the water. And I was like, yeah, fucking yeah, they're in the water too. That's fucking great. Yeah. Um, And we just ended up having the climax, like two settings ahead of where I thought we might have it, but I'm like trying to think towards that. And, And then we actually were really effectively able to turn the Marina into 
a climactic point anyway, you know, yeah. which I loved. I loved the setting and I loved that detail that I think you added of like the boat revving and pulling on this rope. And then that sound, like I, I can't wait to hear the sound design that you pulled together on the scene, or I guess this will come out after. Um, it should be fun. We'll see. Yeah. But just that sound, it became such a loud final scene in my head yeah. with that description with like more and more monsters with like all the chaos. It just, yeah, it was like everybody really pulled it out in the last scene to like make it a really chaotic climax. And especially because we've established this, like it's this milky darkness monster with these red eyes. They're attracted to sound, you know, kind of a quiet place adjacent. All of a sudden we add a motorboat and we add people running towards the water. It's like, you can feel them coming from the trees, from the masts, yeah, 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 like you can just feel everything colliding towards you, you know, coming directly towards you in this kind of like cyclonic whirlpool type thing. And I think since we knew it was the last scene, we wanted to make that scene as big and as insane as possible. Yeah, because we know like if this is where we're going to go down. We want this to be, you know, worthy of that moment. And I think by the end of this game, partially because of the dice mechanics, partially because of the game itself and partially because you know, we had a group of players and a game master who were all very bought into the tone and the vibe that was being established, which is by far the most important thing for a game like this is having everyone be bought in. But because we had all of that, we were able to build such a great climax because we all knew what it should look like. We all knew how we wanted it to feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was great. And I will say that um, going back a few points to what you were talking about, about like one of the things I was worried about in terms of spacing out the monster sightings and interactions enough, mm-hmm. I do I do want to give full credit to the book because the book has a lot of really good advice on that kind of stuff that like potential game masters should read. I mean, you should read the whole book cover to cover if you're going to run this. Um, For sure. But there's a lot of really good advice about like spacing out sightings and talking about the fear of the unknown and then making the like actual interactions much more meaningful by limiting them. And then also Stephen has this great line in there about thinking of them in terms of dark, darker and darkest as like the three tiers of them where it's like the like minions, the like mini bosses and the big boss. And while that didn't come into play in this, I think that was still in my mind, maybe more so in terms of like mini boss and boss. It was like, mob size in my mind thinking about like okay you've dealt with like two or three of these at once okay you've dealt with like six to ten of these at once and then at the end we're dealing with like 20 30 40 50 of these all at once and like thinking about that like scale of three it was super helpful i think actually just you know a quick aside because we never directly addressed it in the episode it might be good to tell anyone who's listening what the brink the monsters got what the brink they got were Right. Um, so you wrote the brink. You were um, in, in character creation and the brink was I have seen them hunt for fun. This is all a game to them. And I never ended up using the brink in play just because by the time I th- would have thought to use it, the roles were already going largely in my favor. Um, yeah. And that's just it was just we were in the flow. But that did serve to inform like the trees thing, a way that I would describe the monsters. You know, there was some moments where like they're like throwing coconuts to mess with the soldiers or they're grabbing onto you, but then letting go and like backing off. They're not like really going for the kill at every moment. And um, 
and there's a moment where like one of them is like eyeing you and it's sort of bobbing its head back and forth. That gave a lot of like internal flavor tone description for them for me to mess around with, even though it was never stated explicitly. Um, So that, that brink written by the player can, and for players of this game. And if you end up in that position, you can really drive a lot of the flavor for them with that note card. It is a very cool little Easter egg of a, of an aspect of this game. Yeah. One minor note that we both discovered after we played Things that we did incorrectly while playing this game was ties in roles actually go to the game master rather than to the player, unlike Dungeons and Dragons and similar games. Yeah, I'm just too generous as a GM. I couldn't, I couldn't handle the thought. But, you know, we kept it consistent, so it's all fine. As with most games, and as you say on the show, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. So if you, if you forget a rule, don't, it's not the end of the world. Nobody's going to... And we were having fun. Gonna, we were for right. sure doing it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep it consistent. Your players will be happy, um, as we certainly were. Now that you've played this game once, because I think this is an incredibly well, a very well-written rule book, a very well-written game that does so much for you. But mm. no matter how good a rule book is, there are some things that you learn better from playing and from doing. And this is, I mean, true with every aspect of life. You learn a little better from doing than from just reading and studying what tips would you give to game masters and players like for playing this game that you maybe didn't learn from the rule book, but learned from boots on the ground playing this game? Um, take the label off your Cafe Bustelo can. If you're That's true. Use if your, you're going to burn stuff burn in a Cafe Bustelo can, there. the label will shrink and kind of burn and it smells a little weird. I think that I, I, I maybe wish that I, and this is, was partly because I was a little in my own head at the beginning, but I think I wish I was a little more hands-on in the, in the trait and moment and brink writing and like let that be a little more of a conversation. I think I sort of sent you guys off into your islands to write them. And because mm-hmm. of that, we ended up with like two people having the same virtue, which isn't terrible, but I think we could have gotten a little more variety if we had just kind of like talked it out a little more. And I think that... Um, I was really focused on making sure that I like communicated exactly what they were so nobody was confused, but I wasn't like, you know, let's like talk about what you guys are putting and like throw ideas out there that might be interesting. That would be one thing. Um, I think that one thing I didn't do that I would think more consciously about is, is really pushing for the moments. I think that I got really caught up in the scenes and I would forget when people's moments were active. And I think that you guys as players did a really good job of thinking about your moments and like reminding me when like it might apply. And then the times that we did use them, they worked really well. But yeah, I don't think that I was thinking as much as I should have about like how to drive a scene towards those moments. And I think that's probably what I would do a little differently is, is maybe focus on that. The benefits you get from a moment and the benefits you get from a brink are so good and like, are made clear how good they are pretty quickly in the game, like after you start rolling dice, that you're, as a player, pretty actively looking for a time to use those moments. Because A, like, the moment is something you've kind of pre-written and you know, like, that's where my characters go. And so you immediately have that in your head. And then the the brink being able to roll, re-roll all the dice, when you start getting down into it and you're not rolling any six, it's like you want any excuse to roll more dice. Oh, yeah. So it makes it easy for a player because, like, we're very much driven to burn those things because we Mm -hmm. want the benefits they they provide yeah i think the other thing on like a repeat play that i would keep in mind it's not necessarily even a change i think i think you said this 
maybe earlier in this conversation or in one of our other conversations that this has those elements of like a GM list game where like everybody is contributing to the world building and, sure. and different things like that. And I think just remembering that about this game would make it so that I wouldn't feel nervous at all running this game again, you know, because I'd be like, it's not really all on me, you know, like, yeah, there's, there's definitely jobs I have in this and like, you know, but now that I've done the rituals and I've done the ending and I've done the character creation, like that stuff's all fine. I know once we're in play, it's like a real group project collaboration, having a lot of fun. So I think that I would, as much as you can, if this is your first time playing this game, keep that in mind. It might help ease some of your nervousness. And I think that that on repeat would just be, I would be even more in that mindset of like, oh, everybody's feeding into this and, and it's. Yeah, for sure. And you're really just there to like guide those rituals and then. And occasionally push, you know, you listen and you occasionally push. I would also love to play some of the weirder modules in the back of the book, like the astronaut module. Yeah, and the space one. I want to play the space one. So there's definitely, I think, yeah, I think it's, it's funny. This may be a bit of an aside, um, but Chinook and I were talking about how we just want to like play a ton of games with this group. But like we would always probably feel like afterwards, like, oh, we should have recorded that, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but would love to play the Astro. Brian needs more content. (laughs) Honestly, you know, I say it jokingly, but it is kind of true. Half the reason I do these podcasts because it gives me a great excuse to play more games with friends. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's helped me play a lot of games I've been wanting to play for a while. So it's been great. Yeah. Yeah, it's not nothing wrong with that. So if you if you want to play more games, all you got to do, start a podcast, start a podcast and spend like, you know, 10 or 20 hours editing and sound designing after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. 20 to 30 hours, like 20 to 12, 30, 12 yeah. to 15 hours per hour. <laughs> uh, you know, go nuts. Yeah. I guess the last thing that I would do playing this game in the future, and this is um, somewhat antithetical to recording it for a podcast. But like, I would really bring the heat with like putting some spooky music on while playing. Like, like I could see that. Um, really like setting up a soundtrack, which you know, you guys will hear listening to the episode that there will be a really killer soundtrack. Um, but obviously, we were recording audio, so we didn't go too too crazy with that. But I think like if I was setting up a home game of this, I would like really really choose a choose a good music setup. That would be. I think that would add a lot. I think yeah, anything you can do to add ambiance i mean this game already you know you play it in the dark with 10 candles and there's these rituals you know how how often in your life do you you know chant together every like 10 15 minutes yeah right Uh, (laughs) you know other than church i guess you know amen anything you can do to like heighten that sense is gonna be wildly beneficial to your game yeah as dark a room as you can get it i mean we had the semi-ambient new york light but if you were rural you could really really end up in the dark at the end when you play that final uh, message. I know some people are going to want to play this game online because it's just like easier. But if you get the chance, absolutely like get some friends together and play it. I really just like invite your friends over under any pretense and then just turn out the lights <laughs> and let them know this is what we're doing. It's a zero prep game. You can do that. You don't need to plan. Yeah. But honestly, this game is so fun. Strongly encourage you to go out, pick up a copy of, of Stephen Dewey's game. And support Stephen Dewey. He's he is such an incredible designer. Support everything Stephen Dewey does because he's great. It was so much fun to talk to for this series, and this game was just so much fun to read, so much fun to play. I think this one, you know, every time we play a game on this show, I'm like really excited to play it again. 
I think mm-hmm. this one even every time it's like, no, 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 but this is the one I want to play again. No, 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 but this is the one I want to play again. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited to dive into this again, especially to try like one of those weirder scenarios, you know, the astronauts or something. Yeah. And I think one thing that I need to get over about something like a horror game is that it doesn't got to be Halloween. It doesn't got to be Halloween to play a game no. like this. You know, we played it in November, late November. It's still still spooky enough vibes out there. It's um, scary you all play the time. Any time of year, and I think you would have a I think you would have a great time. I think that there's sometimes a tendency to like only lean into games like this when you're doing like a Halloween one shot with your gaming group. But you know, play it, play it, play it all year. Yeah, guys, seen Midsommar? It's terrifying. Happens in July. Yeah. <laughs> And that is it for this season of My First Dungeon, 10 Candles. Thank you so much to our GM, Elliot, to our players, Abby Hepworth, Chinook Tessera, and myself. And a huge, mega, colossal thank you to Stephen Dewey for taking the time to talk to us about this game and for creating something just this gosh darn fun. I really cannot recommend it enough. Please pick up this game, play it read it you'll have a great time at every step of the process elliot before we get out of here uh do you want to tell the people where they can find you what you've been working on um you can find all of my games at moreblueberries.itch.io uh you can find me on twitter at moreblubes and if you are looking to pick up physical copies of my games you can find something is wrong with the chickens at indie press revolution and you can find abominations at 20 sided store in brooklyn shout out 20 sided store shout out 20 sided store we love 20 sided store and if you're looking to learn more about this show you can check us out on social media at my first dungeon on twitter and at 20 sided podcast on instagram and if you want to support the show the biggest help you can give us is to go onto your podcast player right now follow the show leave us a review it really does help more people find the show and learn about it and it mean a lot to me and tell your friends it's a great show and tell your friends we're having so much fun they will too and as always remember if you're having fun you're already doing it right bye-bye everybody If you're hearing this, that means you listen to every last second of this episode. If you're not caught up yet, that's great because then there's plenty more to listen to. But if you are caught up and you simply can't wait for the next episode, then you should head on over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod and become a member of the Dice Pool. For just a few bucks a month, you'll get cast talkbacks, original games, and a full-length bonus actual play each and every month. As of the end of 2023, there is already over 20 hours of bonus audio, plus a whole bunch of other goodies to enjoy. So head on over to patreon.com slash myfirstdungeonpod and jump into the dice pool. We'll see you there.